Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Cable news is ripping us apart, dividing the nation, making it impossible to function as a society and to know what is true and what is false. The good news is that they're failing and they know it. That is why we're building something new. Be part of creating a new, better, healthier, and more trustworthy mainstream by becoming a Breaking Points premium member today at breakingpoints.com. Your hard-earned money is going to help us build for the midterms and the upcoming presidential election so we can provide unparalleled coverage of what is sure to be one of the most pivotal moments in American history. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com to help us out. Time now for our weekly partnership segment with The Lever. Joining us now, the founder of that wonderful outlet, the one and only David Sirota. Great to see you, sir. Good to see you. Um, you got a big think piece out this week that I think is uh, really important that I think everyone should take the time to read through, through fully and sit with. Let's go ahead and put this tear sheet up on the screen. You say, it's time for Dems to fear their own voters. We are here because GOP politicians fear their base while Democratic politicians don't, and that must change. Um, you're pointing figure, fingers, you know, at Democratic leadership. You're also pointing some fingers, though, at the sort of progressive activist base that has not succeeded in uh, persuading normie liberal voters to be on their side and holding these Democratic politicians to account. So just take us through a little bit of your argument here. Sure. Uh, look, conservative media has spent 20, 30 uh, years conditioning Republican voters to demand things of their politicians uh, and holding those politicians accountable. I think it's fair to say that uh, the MSNBCs of the world, the uh, elite media, corporate media, uh, that media sphere has spent those same 30 years conditioning uh, normie Democratic voters, liberal voters, uh, to never demand anything of Democratic politicians uh, or hold them accountable. And I think that roughly explains why we are here at this moment uh, watching 
the Supreme Court produce a flood of right-wing rulings. We know that dark money went in to buy the Supreme Court. We know that uh, Republican, uh, huge amounts of Republican money went into uh, putting in place uh, lawmakers who would approve those Supreme Court justices. So you have that on, on that side. And it also explains why you have Democrats who, in response to those right-wing rulings, are doing, saying they basically can't do anything uh, other than uh, send out fundraising emails because they expect the Democratic base voters after 30 years of that conditioning to never demand that they do anything and never electorally hold them accountable. So I think it really does explain this asymmetry here where you have the Republicans and the American right on the march now producing rulings at odds with what public opinion actually wants and a Democratic Party uh, who's officially on the side, at least in their white papers and in their rhetoric, officially on the side of what the public wants, but unwilling to really do much of anything to stop what's going on, even as they control uh, the lawmaking apparatus of the federal government, you might you might have r forgotten that based on their on their behavior, but they still control the lawmaking branches of the government. What what led to this situation? Because I do think Republicans are much more responsive to their base. Um, conservative media is much more willing to sort of push Republican lawmakers to be responsive to that base. And you just don't have that on the Democratic side. Like, where did that sit down and shut up and it's your responsibility to vote for us and if you don't, that's on you, not on us? Like, what is the origin story of that vibe in the Democratic Party? It's a really good question. I think part of it traces back to the mythology that was created surrounding George McGovern. Uh, I think that after McGovern lost the 1972 race, that became a cautionary tale baked in to how Democrats told them uh, t told their, themselves their own story. Uh, hmm. And that story that they told themselves was uh, the 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 left is why we lost that election. The left is why we lose elections. And of course, the opportunism behind that story was from the corporate right of the party, which didn't like the New Deal, which doesn't like the left. And so out of that came uh, the kind of idea that the left the progressive base, the Democratic base of the party, uh, the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party is the real problem. Uh, and that what we need to do is constantly triangulate against that base of our party. Uh, and anytime that base of the party uh, tries to hold uh, politicians at the top of the party accountable, that's bad. That's the McGovern cautionary tale. So I think that mixed in with a corporate wing of the party that benefits from that narrative, that gets mm. to seize power and control the party through the, the storytelling of that narrative uh, has benefited from that. And, and that's why I think we're here. That's why you had uh, Rahm Emanuel, uh, who famously embodied this uh, in when he was chief of staff uh, for President Obama, he was literally, uh, it was a scandal because of the language he used, but he, and I won't use the language here, but he insulted in very profane terms, uh, progressive groups that were simply trying to, or had proposed pressuring conservative Democrats to support something as modest and moderate as the Affordable Care Act. And the idea was that 
the Democratic base of the party should not be holding Democratic politicians accountable because that is politically and electorally toxic. And they argue politically and electorally toxic to the project of defeating Republicans. I mean, it's all nonsense, but I think that's the cultural story. So I think you've got, you know, at this point, uh, thanks in large part to uh, Bernie's two presidential campaigns, you've got maybe 30 percent of the Democratic Party, let's say, that has a real critique of Democratic Party leadership, frustrated with their inaction, kind of sees their failures, understands more or less the arc of how we ended up here. And then you have maybe 70% that has largely bought into this idea that, listen, we may want more things, but it's just not possible and we got to kind of go with the flow so we can win elections because stopping the Republicans, they're an existential threat and that's got to be our number one through 10 priority on the list. Do you see, we've been talking about this on Breaking Point some this week, and we talked, um, you and I, on Lever Live about this this week as well. Do you see some cracks emerging in that uh, storyline that has been fed to the overwhelming majority of the Democratic base? Yes, and I think this is a silver lining that's good. I think that what we're finally starting to see uh, is um, the mainstreaming of the anger at the Democratic Party, uh, not from the far right, but from the Democratic base. And I happen to think that's a really good thing. There was an NBC poll that showed, for instance, two thirds of Democratic primary voters uh, want their lawmakers to try to push for big change, even if it risks uh, not passing, as opposed to one third who want the opposite. Uh, that is a suggestion that suggests uh, that the nonsense of we have to go small in order to do things or in order to not antagonize the Republicans, that the Democratic base large swaths of the Democratic base no longer believes that. There was another poll that showed uh, a plurality of voters do not believe the idea anymore that the president can't do anything in the situation uh, the, that the current president, Joe Biden, is in. Uh, there uh, is another stat. Joe Biden only has a 25 percent approval rating among uh, people 18 to 34. So a complete collapse uh, among of support for the Democratic president among young people who are truly sick of it all. I think all of that is a good thing for this reason, because if you look back at history, uh, the everything basically that you uh, love that the Democratic Party uh, had, that, has, that it has produced in history, Social Security, Medicare, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, I could go through the list. That didn't come because people were just mindlessly cheering on Democratic politicians. That came because people uh, forced Democratic leaders kicking and screaming to finally electorally, uh, to, to, to finally respond because those Democratic politicians felt electorally threatened. They felt existentially threatened in their jobs. And so I think if this is the turning point, if the Roe case, the overturning of Roe is the catalyst for the mainstreaming of a realization that the only way the Democratic Party is going to produce is if voters, uh, normie Democratic voters, get more engaged and make actual demands, then that turning point, as horrible as that overturning of Roe is, that's the silver lining there. Um Last question for you, David, because, um, you know, I said something to the effect when we were talking on Lever Live about similar, like, you got to hold them accountable. And I sort of cringed at myself when I said it because it sounded a lot like, you know, the people who were like, pull Biden. Don't worry, we're going to pull Biden left <laughs> um, when he got the nomination, which I was always like, 
that's not going to happen. Like, we know what this guy is, and we've seen what he is, and none of that has actually worked out. Um, they're still managing somehow to blame the left, even though he's completely rejected the ideas that have come from the left. So be a little more specific about when we say hold them accountable, what does that actually mean? What does that look like? And what does uh, how does that play out? Sure. Look, I think first and foremost in Democratic primaries that conservative Democrats uh, need to have challengers all the time, really strong challengers. Uh, and it doesn't take many to do, it doesn't take many wins to scare the rest of them into thinking through whether they want a primary the next time around and whether they want to deal with a primary. That's the dynamic, by the way, that you have in the Republican Party. Uh, the Republican Party, Republican candidates are afraid of their right. The Democratic Party candidates uh, essentially take their, their, their left or the progressive base uh, for granted. Uh, because the Republican Party, they have primaries all the time. Uh, the Democratic Party, the culture is to look down on primaries, try to prevent them from happening, to kind of scoff at them. So I think that's one of the major ways that, that, we, that the Democratic base has to get over the idea that primaries are bad. Primaries are good. Uh, that is the the democracy in the Democratic Party, or at least it should be, and it hasn't been enough for a very long time. I think that Congress has a lot of power to do things uh, that Biden may or may not want. There's a lot of focus on what Biden should do at the executive branch level. Uh, he has not signed a stack of executive orders. It's totally unacceptable. It's a total betrayal. But I think that when I think the Democratic Congress has plenty of power to send things to Biden's desk uh, and to and to make him try to choose uh, whether to veto bills or uh, or sign them. Now, obviously, you have the filibuster. That's a huge problem. But I also think that it's outside of the sphere of legislation in the sense of even raising awareness of what's being slipped into bills, what's not passing, what executive orders aren't being signed, to essentially educate the Democratic electorate about what the party could do and what it's not doing. Because I agree with you. I don't necessarily think Joe Biden in, in right now is going to be wake up one day and decide to uh, move to the left or be more responsive to the, to the Democratic base. This is a long-term project. This is 30, 40 years of culture that needs to change inside the Democratic Party. And I, I think, and maybe I'm a hopeless optimist, but I think we may be at the turning point where that entire culture starts to change right now over not just one election, but many elections and many legislative cycles. And the last thing I'll say about this, which I think is really important, is, you know, they always had this, uh, pardon the pun, but Trump card <laughs> of yeah. you got to vote for us because uh, we got to defeat the Republic. They're terrible. Donald Trump is awful. That is all certainly the case. Um, and the media really backed him up with this story that uh, you got to go with the centrist, Joe Biden, because he's the one that the, you know, theoretical factory worker in the Midwest or whatever is going to feel comfortable with and vote for. And um, now that he's in office and we see how terrible his approval ratings are and we see that he's losing and head head uh, rematches against Donald Trump, they really don't have that ability to say, you got to stick with us because of electability. And so I think that also opens up a potential avenue here because it is very hard to overcome. I understand why people say, ah, you know, ah, we'd like to do more, but God, we just got to make sure that we hold on to the White House. I don't think they can lean on that this time around because he is in such a manifestly poor position in order to get reelected. 
I, I completely agree. You're, that point is such a, a good point that it has usually been that you have to uh, not be responsive to the base in order to win elections. That's been the argument. I think it's a, a lot of nonsense, but that's been the argument. And when a president is decent in, in approval ratings, uh, the argument has some salience. Now that argument has collapsed. I would argue that Biden, Bidenism and the corporate wing of the Democratic Party has gotten everything uh, policy wise that it wants. It got an infrastructure bill. It did not get the bill, the build back better bill. Uh, it has not gotten a new new deal, if you will. Uh, and now it is sitting there with some of the lowest approval ratings heading into a midterm that we've seen in in modern history. So in other words, they got everything they wanted. Uh, they the left has very little, if any, legislative power in, in any real sense. And that was supposed to result, according to their story, uh, in them having hugely sky high approval ratings. Instead, their approval ratings have collapsed. It is a political crisis of epic proportions, which proves the point, in my view, that by by crapping on the base, by putting their foot in the eye of the base uh, of the Democratic Party, that's actually the key, not only policy problem, it's the key political problem, which basically creates an opportunity for millions of Democratic voters to, to realize that, to be educated about that, to see that in practice and say, you know what, the way to actually try to win elections uh, to not only do good things, but to also defeat the Republicans is to actually deliver a real agenda, a popular agenda that we, the Democratic base, actually wants. Well, I think you could be right that there might be ultimately a silver lining to, you know, what is ultimately a, an atrocious decision. So we will definitely be watching to see how it all plays out. David, great to see you as always. Thank you. Thank you. Some interesting comments from Charlemagne the God in the wake of the Supreme Court overturning of Roe versus Wade. He really is one of my favorite commentators, favorite interviewers of politicians, definitely, he because he just does not give a single fuck. Um, so here's what he had to say, knocking Democrats for their failures to protect women's rights. He said, and I quote, what we witnessed on Friday was the cowardice of the Democratic Party catching up to them. He claimed Democrats have known, quote, what Republicans have been planning for decades because Republicans have never hidden their agenda. Very true. They have shown and told us what play they are going to run. For some reason, Democrats never crafted a defense to stop them. Yes, it's easy to point the figure, finger at Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell, he said, but I feel like the cowardice and inaction from Democrats caused a lot of this. And he specifically cited former President Barack Obama, um, you know, saying that he would codify Roe on the campaign trail, having a supermajority and doing nothing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just undeniably the case. And to hear someone like Charlemagne uh, say this and hear it echoed, you know, certainly with young protesters, a lot of uh, just regular kind of normie libs waking up to the fact that Democrats have had decades to prepare for what they knew was coming. Uh, Barack Obama had the chance to do something about it. Joe Biden had the chance, at least after the leaked draft uh, came out, to prepare some kind of a response, some kind of agenda, some kind of uh, some path forward for Democrats and absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think what it's, what's interesting is to watch kind of more identitarian, more... Uh, 
just non, non-traditional political constituencies who generally put a lot of faith in the Democratic Party and into the media be like, hold on a second. Wait, you said in 08 you were going to codify it into law when you actually had the votes, and then you didn't do it. So why didn't you do that? And, you know, Obama has not been. This would be a great question to MSNBC the next time they score their Obama question. Somebody should ask him, like, wait, why didn't you do that? Mm-hmm. While you were in office and you had 60 votes, he'd probably say, well, you know, I only have so much on my plate. The presidency is like a ship. You can only steer it in a couple directions. Uh, Obamacare, all of that. How did that work out for you politically? Uh, I think these are great questions to ask any of these leaders. Even you could go back as far as, uh, what, 93? Bill Clinton, I believe, ran on the exact same thing. I don't know about codifying, but Safe, Legal, and Rare came up with that standard and probably had a better chance than anybody at actually passing something um, in 93 whenever they had control of Congress. That also isn't really something that people really discuss. So there is a political failure and a legacy all at the time when, like you said, I mean, the conservative legal movement has been very open. They're like, we're going to- This is what we're doing. All the way back. Here's our plan. Here's our organization. This is the track we're on. Like, it was all Ever since 92, they were like, hey, President Bush, you need to appoint somebody who is going to return. You know, actually, people still in that community uh, despise Anthony Kennedy and President H.W. Bush for putting him on the court because he codified, was it Casey, right? The 1992 case law. He's the one who basically forced things in that direction. They're like, never again, we're not going to do Casey again. So that's when they started putting even more pressure on the presidents and conservative presidents specifically in order to ramp up their scrutiny for who they were going to appoint to the court. That's why there really hasn't been a quote unquote squish on the court, um, at least on Roe versus Wade since then, because of a massive political organizing effort on their part. Yeah. And you know what? If you're not going to do anything about it, at least don't lie to people and try to fundraise off of it. That's a good I mean, if yeah. you're just, if you're like, yeah, there's nothing we can do. And even if you get us reelected, there's not really anything we can do about it. But at least we won't be the Republicans to try to pass a nationwide ban. At least be honest about that. Mm-hmm. Don't send out these fundraising missives. Send us $15 pretending like you've got some freaking plan that you don't. When all you really have is like whatever your cringe poem, Nancy Pelosi, that you're going to read. And no real plan of action. Don't do that. Um, I... I do think with with this in particular, there is a little bit of uh, an awakening among the sort of core Democratic base that sees so clearly. I mean, the perfect example is here's Pelosi. Oh, she's reading her poem. She's so sad. She's so (laughs) upset. You literally just dragged an anti-choice lawmaker over the finish line by a few hundred votes. I mean, the hypocrisy of that is so in your face that you just can't deny that these people are not serious. That, you know, as, as Charlemagne says, this is a lot about their their cowardice and their inaction that led to this point ultimately. So, um, you know, he's uh, he's one who's not afraid to. He had uh, Pete Buttigieg on the show and yep. he kind of pushed him on some things. Of course, he's the one well, he who- He should push him on why the freaking airlines don't work. He absolutely should. Yeah. Um, he also, you know, remember he had that famous moment with Elizabeth Warren where he was like, oh, so you're the new Rachel yeah. Dolezal. Um, I love that. He pushed you Biden, the you ain't black, black moment. Famous. So Never it forget. shows you uh, what you can do when you don't care about access, yeah. when you aren't in the club, in the same club. And Kamala going know? after her. And she was like, I'm sorry, Charlemagne. We were running out of time. He's like, they Oh, try- I forgot yeah, about that. And he was that. like, they're trying to pretend they don't hear me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was a great moment too. So anyway, I think it's an interesting sign of, of how it. people are feeling. And the last thing I'll say is... Um, Biden won the primary based on electability. He no longer has electability. 
I mean, he no longer can make the case that if you look at polls, you can no longer make it. You got to stick with me, though, no matter how disappointed you are. Mm -hmm. So I do think it opens up a new avenue of critique and uh, potential challenge to him. Absolutely. I always cause a little bit of a stir online. Crystal, you know I'm a little bit of a shit poster. Yeah. And uh, found myself getting canceled by the continent of Europe. People are very upset. So let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. So this guy, Pierre Richelson, he tweets this. Okay, serious question. What keeps the average American that can afford it from moving to Europe? Please enlighten me. Beyond the please, uh, beyond the uh, being able to afford it, here's what I said. I've all long hated Eurocope um, online. So here's what I said. Europe is substantially poorer, more racist, less dynamic, much less free than the United States. Food is bland. The coffee tastes like shit. The weather is mostly awful. Their primary cultural export is tourism, and they have less say in the affairs of the world. I followed it up and said, I would rather drink gas station coffee for the rest of my life (laughs) than another bullshit seven euro espresso in your average euro capital. And then I just followed it up with another tweet of myself drinking a nice full American drip coffee uh, Crystal, what do you think? I, Are you I on the Euro Sarah side? Has started yeah. a shitstorm when I start getting yeah. like yeah. I get mentions of like, "Come get your boy. Yeah. He's ruining the brand." <laughs> This is a very yeah. broad brush yeah. with which you are painting an yeah. entire continent. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's true. I stand by it, though. Number one, there is a lot of wonderful food in Europe. Um, I have not been to Italy or Greece, but I love the cuisines of both. I've been to both. And They're both I have fun. heard wonderful yeah, things. They're both fine. I have been to Spain. Okay. Spanish food, I think, is also wonderful. French food, I will say, is overrated, and everybody's right when they say that uh, English food does suck. Mm-hmm. Um, so on food, I think you have an array of amazing options depending on what country you are in. In terms of them being less free, I actually really disagree with this one because— Um, It depends. So my definition of freedom includes, you know, having the sort of positive liberty of social programs that allow people to live and thrive and achieve and have happiness. And if you look at the, you know, sort of well-being rankings of our country versus Europe, we do terribly. I mean, first of all, of course, they have universal health care. They have a lot more social. If you look at France, you know, people who have kids are way more supported in uh, certainly in France, but in a lot of these countries. So I do not buy at all that they are less dynamic, that they are substantially poorer when you consider that uh, the mass amounts of inequality that we have. So you have much more broader shared prosperity in Europe. Um the weather, again, really depends. Like, Spain has some wonderful, uh, Greece has this some wonderful weather, by. Italy has some wonderful weather. I don't so, know about that here's one. Here's the thing about Italy. Think about Italy. Consider this. They get as much sunlight on the aver- average square miles on Italy as Boston, okay? That's how far. People forget how far north Europe it is. Depends. It's like living in Maine. Listen, Listen Maine is nice you to and visit. I have very I'm not living up there. Well, you and I have like, very different weather preferences. Yeah, that's too. true. You that's love correct. the heat. I fucking the hate sun. the heat. The love humidity the sun, during the D.C. in the <laughs> summer. No, thank you. So... Definitely disagree on that. There's a lot of, like, that Mediterranean climate is amazing. These are the healthiest. You with your health, health nuts. You're not wrong. These are the healthiest no. places in the world. Well, uh, that's, that's actually not true. Gre- I'd rather live Okinawa is much, okay. much healthier. But this is the All blue right. zone, the Mediterranean yes. yeah, diet, healthiest place in the world, walkable, beautiful cities. And even this idea, their primary culture export is tourism. 
Yeah, because people want to go there because yeah, it's really they nice. They don't invent anything. All right. When's the last time you had a, a invention that a major world changing okay. invention? Our, the richest okay. Europeans on. move here. Hold on. Our yeah. economy is like based on Wall Street financialization. That's our whole thing. Our, no our innovations are like rapid trade. What's it called? Like rapid trading. What's the name? Uh, of high that? frequency trading. High frequency yeah. trading. But they copy that from our, us. They our can't innovations even do that for themselves. are like our innovations are like high frequency trading, uh, CIA uh, coups. That's sure. one of our great innovations. Yeah, but they also can't do that. Anymore. So it's not they like our economy it. it. is some marvel of like innovation, productivity, or anything like that. It's a marvel of like tax avoidance, rigging the political system, and hyper financialization. That's our major export around the world. So look, I do love yeah. where I live. Yeah. I have no intention of moving to Europe, uh-huh. but I do think that there are a lot of things that we could learn with the, from the Europeans that would make us a lot happier here at home. Um, what keeps the average American that can afford it from moving to Europe? Listen, home is home, right? Also, home if you home. can Even afford if you it. you have a critique of home, home is home. If you can afford it, your quality of life here is better. I'm just going to say it. They, oh, that's true. Yeah, well, no. I mean, if you can afford it. If you can afford it, to move to Europe, there's no way you're going to have better quality of life than anywhere else. Yeah, if you're, if you're on the happy yeah. side of the income divide in America, it's great. Oh, I was it's actually a saw a hilarious tweet, which was like, listen, if you could afford to Europe, you're probably going to get the best health care in the world because it's more expensive here. <laughs> that is, you know what? That That is really, that is really actually true. Yeah. So, uh, okay. I just want to address one thing on this yes. freedom point. Yes. I agree with you. Certainly it is f- it better to be a probably lower to middle-class person in Europe than yeah. probably anywhere else on the globe, but also they don't have actual guaranteed bill of rights. So you can just have your assets seized. You can't own a gun. The cops there. I mean, I've been rolled up on cops in Poland and elsewhere, but for the color of my skin, I might add, it's very convenient. They didn't go after anybody else, but Listen, I got no recourse in a Polish court or same in the, even in the UK. You know, in the UK, they can just cancel your passport and kill you. You have no actual rights. The Home Secretary of the UK can just be like, you know what? You're not a citizen anymore. And then they can drop a drone on your ass. So listen, I would just say these are very, very vital things to the American way of life. As far as the food, look, it's mostly a joke. Here's the thing, guys. I'm Indian and I grew up in Texas, which is both probably two. And so I have exposure to Tex-Mex cuisine and Indian cuisine, which are probably what? Some of the most spiced foods on the planet. Yeah. My preference, yep. Burmese food, Thai food. Like my top cuisine is South America, uh, the Middle East. I love the Middle East. That's why even Greece is like bland to me. Doesn't to, like, London supposedly have like the best Indian restaurant? I was going to say, I, that's why I, people were like, oh, we've only been to England. I love London. They have the best food. They have my favorite food. You can get food from all over Asia on top of that. I would put any mid-tier American city against most Euro capitals outside of maybe Paris and of uh, London, simply because even in Chicago, you could go eat the most diverse array, both of your pierogies and whatever Polish food people are eating these days, with some Thai food, some Japanese food, all of that. Not the case um, in the rest of Europe. So they can but keep their— I, it, And also on the coffee, it tastes like shit. I'm I wanna, sorry. I do, I'm sick of these bullshit espressos over there. I, I, yeah. I, I don't have an opinion yeah. on the coffee. I don't have a well-formed take on the on the coffee, so uh-huh. I'm going to let that, <laughs> that one go. But yeah. uh, I, I know others would dissent greatly, and I represent sure them. I think rep them. Yeah, go whatever. Ahead. Um, yeah. But on the freedom point— you know, even on the, the the gun owning piece, like, okay, so you have a right to have, you know, an AR-15 when you're 18 years old, but 
compare that freedom to the freedom to live in a neighborhood that isn't like, you know, crime riddled and violent and worried about your kids going to school where there's going to be mass shootings. So I think even on that level, like you're only looking at the sort of uh, negative freedom side of the coin and not the positive freedom side of the coin. So again, if you look at the happiness statistics, Europeans on average, happier than Americans, much less inequality, much less violence, especially gun violence. So I do think that they have some things going for them that, again, Listen, it's nice I love place. our home. It's a nice place. I enjoy living here. Yeah. This is, you know, this is my place. But I think that you are uh, giving the Europeans a bad rap here. Well, I'm mostly just enjoying seeing them all get pissed off. They're like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, they're like tweeting at me from your 700 square foot flat with like six people crammed in it, driving a car that looks like it's a child's toy. Enjoy it, folks. You can keep it. I'm loving our way of life over here. I would rather go to Denny's. I'll say it. (laughs) That's disgusting. So in the wake of Roe versus Wade being overturned, there were actually a number of corporations that came out immediately and said, you know what, we're responding to this by we're going to provide a benefit to our employees. If they have to travel out of state to get an abortion, we are going to cover that. Starbucks, however, which has been engaged in an astonishing, truly groundbreaking union-busting campaign as Starbucks stores unionize like wildfire across the country, mm-hmm. they went in a really special direction with this soccer. What do they got? Put this up on the screen from uh, Stephen Greenhouse. So Starbucks said all partners who enrolled in their health care plan would have access to those benefits traveling across state lines for abortion But it added it could not make promises of guarantees about any benefits for unionized stores. And Stephen Greenhouse's editorial here is that it is sad. Starbucks exploits the Dobbs decision overturning Roe to engage in some union-busting tricks. Starbucks offers all employees enrolled in health plan access to abortion travel, but claims it can't promise that benefit for its unionized stores. Now, this is consistent with some bullshit that Starbucks has been pulling before, which is potentially illegal Uh union-busting tactics, claiming that, oh, we're going to offer new benefits to workers, but not our union employees because, well, we're we're actually not technically allowed to do that, which is complete nonsense. Of course, if you have a union, you have to bargain with that union. That's the process of collective bargaining. Do you think that they're really going to say no to a new benefit, it's ludicrous. But so they're using this as an opportunity to further their gross union-busting tactic. Yeah, I think it's funny because they continue to do this woke union. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll uh, raise wages, but not for the people who are in a union. Mm-hmm. It's like, how does that even, how's that even possible? And what are they claiming that it's a contract violation? They're like, well, we have to negotiate a separate yes, you contract. Have to, I mean, that's, that is when you have a union representing yeah. a store, you have to do collective bargaining with mm-hmm. the union. But they're just saying like, oh, we can't even offer it to you when it's like, no, no, you offer it, and then the union decides what they want it or not. Of course, they're going to say yes. Like, why would you say <laughs> no to an additional benefit? So it's it's ridiculous. And, and like I said, it may even be in uh, violation of labor law, as many of their actions have been found at this point to be in violation of labor law. It's funny. I've been uh, listening to this book from, I don't know, it's from maybe 2013, Rana Faruhar's Makers and Takers. Mm. And she talks about, the book overall is good. This is not a slam on the book at all. It's actually very interesting, very prescient for the moment that we're living in now about the financialization of the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But she interviews Howard Schultz for the book and he's talking all about how progressive they are and how important it is to invest in their employees. And that's going to be great for the long term, making sure that you have people in the community who can afford to buy your coffees, the sort of Henry Ford model and all of this. And then you see the way Starbucks, above 
all of these companies has really actually been the worst in terms of union busting. Mm -hmm. I mean, Schultz came out of retirement. Just to bust the union. Just to come back in as CEO and try to destroy these unions. He called it an assault on the company. Um, There were uh, heads that rolled at the executive level because they allowed this union effort to take root. And uh, it it really is quite extraordinary to see. It's a very mask-off moment for all of their supposed progressive principles. You know, they were willing to go, they were willing to do a lot of things that were supposedly progressive, but when it came to actually respecting their workers enough to let them have a say in the workplace, that was completely off limits. And they will use, like, weird, woke union-busting tactics like this to try to accomplish their ends. Yeah, I mean, they know know who their workforce is. They know how they can try and use these as wedge issues. I mean, Amazon and all that, I'm sure, are not that far behind in using this stuff. Yeah, the only thing that can stand up to this is the government. So, you know, and LRB needs to take a look. Yeah, 100%. So as you guys know, as we've been covering extensively, of course, the Supreme Court in a landmark ruling overturning Roe versus Wade. Now, not only have Democrats had literally 50 years to prepare for this moment. Mm -hmm. But even within this administration, they got a head start because this decision was leaked. We all knew it was coming. And so you would think that they might have been prepared for it, but they weren't. Uh, Puck News actually has this report that their response has been so (laughs) lacking and embarrassing that even Republicans are shocked at how little they have actually done. Put this up on the screen. Uh, This is Puck News. They say the GOP inside conversation on Roe during the past few days have been talking to Republican operatives across D.C. They were all careful not to gloat, but they've also been shocked at how little the Democratic Party is doing to fight back. Here is how this uh, begins. This is from Julia Yaffe. She says, you would think that with a month of advance warning about how SCOTUS was going to rule, Democrats would have been better prepared for the day that Roe versus Wade finally fell. And yet, when it happened, Democrats did what Democrats do best, make memes, get mad at each other, and do little of consequence. Yeah. Don't forget, Pelosi did read a poem uh, and send out an, a fundraising email. So they did do that. Yeah, so this is what a GOP aide uh, said to them. Quote, if I were the libs, I would be putting forward a flurry of legislation like making birth control free and widely available. If you say it's not widely enabled enough, go after that. Cover the gaps. Don't go for the big stuff. Split the GOP conference as much as you can. Yeah. Force people to vote. If the goal is protecting women or advancing legislation, you could actually pass. Take every possible <clears throat> potential that you possibly could. You know, another interesting one is actually uh, what Matt Iglesias and some others have been pointing out, which is that Planned Parenthood and the other choice groups are refusing to allow votes on exceptions because they don't want to decouple exceptions from Roe and they don't have the votes, frankly, for Roe right now. But, I mean, that seems like a decent strategy. Yeah. If you like, why not? If you have 60 votes for exceptions in the life of the mother, like, shouldn't you pass that? Like, and rape but, and incest. Right, and, well, that's my yeah. Exceptions or, and rape. And it's like, well, another hey, one, you should probably pass that unless the, you want the talking point, right. though. Well, and oh, you have, yeah. you actually, you have a majority of Americans who also fear that, um, who expect that this decision on Roe will lead to the overturning of Obergefell is mm-hmm. the latest polling. There's 56% of Americans yeah, that, they, that they think that's yeah. coming next. I mean, Justice Thomas mentioned it specifically. Yeah, go pass codify gay marriage. I mean, even if you think it's an outside chance, like get that shit in writing and make sure it's done while you have the chance. Uh, another one is now there's questions about whether states like Texas are exploring banning women from interstate travel to be able to get abortions in states where it is still legal. Codify, make sure that that is clearly illegal as well because the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh kind of indicated maybe this would be a problem, but they did not say it clearly and states are moving forward with this. So 
The idea there's nothing you can do is just not true. And there are many avenues they could pursue that, as you say, would really put Republicans in a tough spot who yeah. are out on a limb on this and in a crazy, you know, extreme positions and really beholden to a very radical fringe on this issue that's very well organized. But nothing. And, and again, they had time to get this all figured out. You really would think if this was a functioning political party at all, the minute this came down, we would have a list of legislation, talking points ready, ready to go, ready to put the pressure on, and yet nothing. Yeah. Um, there's a, Let's put this one up on the screen next. Uh, more to this point, they say Democrats could have codified Rowan 93 with Bill Clinton and congressional majority. They could have done it again in 2009. They had a supermajority and Barack Obama had promised it would be the first thing he'd do in office, but they didn't. Why? This is from an article that is in the conservative National Review. Mm -hmm. So again, it's not just, you know, people like me and AOC who are like, where the hell are you guys? It's liberals. It's Perry Bacon Jr. in the Washington Post. Um, it's lots of liberals on Twitter who are like, what's going on? And it's Republicans. Republicans who are quietly like, I can't believe they're not doing anything. Yeah. Well, they're just, it's, look, they're bad at their jobs. They are there's so no bad other, at their there's jobs. There's no other real way to put it. Indeed. Whispers after Roe versus Wade. Who can save the Democratic Party? Well, let's put this up there on the screen. CNN, The Washington Post, many other quote-unquote thought leaders are pushing Hillary 2024. Chris Saliza says the whispers have started, and he points to a bunch of writers who have said that Hillary could be the one person. Now is her moment. The Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe creates the opening for Hillary to get out of stealth mode, start down the path towards declaring her candidacy for 2024. Ellis's argument, he He's the conservative writer, by the way, is centered on Joe Biden will be 82. He's too old to run. She, of course, would only be in her 70s. She's not too old. He's the only, not the only person. Juan Williams, you know, the former Fox News commentator, let's put this up there, oh, writing in the Hill. Hillary can rescue Democrats there oh in God. the midterms. How exactly? <laughs> he says, Clinton is exactly the right person to put steel in the Democrats' spine. Bring attention to the fact that ultra-maga Republicans, as President Biden called them, are tearing apart the nation. Keep talking and talk louder, Hillary, is what Juan Williams says. So, look, the drumbeat is there. She actually was asked on television recently. She said that she's not planning it right now. She did not rule out the run. Look, she's too much of a narcissist, I think, to ever actually rule out. But uh, maybe third time's a charm, Crystal. That's what the intelligentsia wants. <laughs> oh, my God. I want to die. Yeah. I hate it here. Um, yeah. I really wasn't taking this seriously because the first article about it was from a conservative writer. Yes. And we've seen this before. This is something Republicans love to do mm -hmm. to like get everybody oh, like, going. Oh, Hillary's, like, back. oh right. Hillary's coming back, and here's the case, well, the like wink and a nod yeah. case for Hillary. But then when Juan Williams wrote it, and then when Chris Saliza yes. like did the whole CNN thing, like the yeah. whispers are starting, I was like, oh my god! And this is the price for not uh, explaining to people clearly after 2016 exactly how and why she failed, and allowing her instead to shift the blame to sexism, Russiagate, Bernie's mean, Jill Stein, Susan Sarandon, whatever. I mean, it is so deranged what these people, these people still think that like Susan Sarandon is the reason that Roe versus Wade was overturned. Yeah, that's right. Literally. Right. And so I, this woman has not only had one bite of the apple, she had two. I mean, she's lost in two presidential races. Democratic Party first was like, we don't want this. And then the whole country was like, we don't want this. It is such a sign of sheer decline and decay and collapse within the Democratic Party that this could be even posited 
without being completely left out of the room. And yet, you know, I mean, she's definitely not going to run against Biden. And I think Biden, as I laid out this week, is definitely running, assuming that he lives that long. Um, But, you know, if it was like a wide open primary, I don't think it's crazy to think that she would throw her hat back in the ring because she's looking around like we all are at how weak, you know, Kamala and Pete and all the rest are and thinking, why not me? Because that's what she's always thought. Now, she has denied outright that she would ever consider. So we'll just put that in there. But the fact that this is still raised with any level of seriousness in this town just shows you how dumb and out of touch and completely laughably absurd all these people are. Yeah, I think that's right. We've covered here pretty extensively, maybe more than any other news program, just how screwed up the airlines are. And we've gone into depth on some of the issues. In particular, what they did is they took a gigantic taxpayer bailout during COVID under the stipulation that they would keep their staffing as is. But then they used the, you know, the time during COVID to, to sort of push out some of their staff push out some of their pilots, induce them to retire. And then rather than when things ramped up, pairing back their flight schedules to recognize that they had much less staff available to fly those planes and staff those planes, they continue to push forward. And so you've had thousands of flights canceled. You have customers that are lined up for hours outside of customer service with not enough staffing there either. You have, you know, they've also bilked passengers out of an absurd amount of money that they should be entitled to in refunds that instead they give them like some credit for a future flight. So it just really is out and out fraud on the airline's part. Now, the person who is in charge of the agency that could deal with it, this is Secretary Pete Buttigieg. And so Bernie Sanders is actually now kind of calling out Pete and demanding that they actually hold these airlines to account. Um, Here is one of uh, Bernie's top longtime aides, Warren Gunnels, laying out exactly what Senator Sanders is proposing. He says, fines of $55,000 a passenger for flight cancellations that can't be fully staffed, full refunds for delays between one and four hours plus meals and lodging for four hour plus delays, fines of $15,000 a passenger for non-weather flight delays two plus hours. So really going after the fact that the airlines are booking people on flights that they know damn well a, a good chunk of are probably not going to happen because the way Derek Thompson laid it out for us is like, in the theory, if every, in the abstract, if every single thing goes perfect, yeah, maybe we can fly all these flights, but they have to build in the fact that nothing is ever going to go completely perfect. And so they're booking people on flights that ultimately, you know, are going to be canceled and it's completely predictable. No, yeah, this is crazy. And also John Fetterman, you know, uh, had put out a proposal mm-hmm. on this. But I just think it's a major indictment of Pete Buttigieg. Like, what is he doing? He has the capacity in order to actually act against these airlines. At the worst that he's done so far is what? Called him for a Zoom call? He's like, please, let's all do a Zoom together. And then he was like, please schedule more flights. Please do and better. And like, yeah. Yes, sir. And then his flight got canceled the very next day. Yeah, and he, and had, he had to, to drive. drive. So Amazing. look, I mean, it's a complete, it's complete BS. And it should be. It's full within the Secretary of Transportation for his ability to levy fines upon the industry if they find wrongdoing. You know, airlines are heavily, basically, being subs- were subsidized during the coronavirus pandemic. We paid them fifty-five billion dollars. They pocketed the money. By all accounts, they have not been using it fairly, and now things are a total mess. So the Fed should get involved. I mean, the airlines, like I've said, they blame aircraft air traffic control. Call the bluff. 
Fine, get some military air traffic controllers in there. If that really is the case, let's find out how much it is. You know, put them on the spot and let's make it so that America can move again. It's like basic stuff like this that makes you feel like the country's falling apart. It is falling Whenever, apart. Yeah, it is. You're yeah. like, oh, I can't fly anywhere or I can't fly anywhere properly. Gas is $5 a gallon. You know, getting a car is insanely expensive. Impossible. A credit card, you know, everything charging on that. Try taking a vacation, you know, in terms of what all the costs and all that stack up to. So look, I just, the basics of life are what people care the most about, and that's where the Biden administration continues to fail every single day. It's, it's really is a, it's dr dramatic. Indeed. So Dave Portnoy, um, the head of Barstool Sports, he came out recently and said something interesting. He said, look, if, uh, if Roe is overturned, I'm going to vote for Democrats. Now, it's surprising to hear from Dave Portnoy because, you know, Barstool Sports is viewed as, fairly or unfairly, I don't know, but they're viewed as more right-leaning. Um, and Portnoy has done a number of appearances on, like, Fox News and Fox Business, and so people uh, got the, the feeling that, you know, Portnoy probably leans significantly right. Um, but he surprised everybody when he came out and said, look, Roe, I, th I think, I believe in Roe versus Wade, I think it's correct, and uh, I'll probably vote for Democrats if Roe is overturned. So he hasn't backed down from that. He sort of leaned into that position and all of these friendships and acquaintances and alliances that he made with right wing commentators is now going up in flames because I know they like to pretend like, oh, the cancel culture mob is solely on the left. But there are countless examples of right wing cancel culture and any semblance of disagreement, major or minor gets you kicked out of the club. You know, these sorts of people, purity test to the high heavens. And so Dave Portnoy is now witnessing this firsthand, and he's sort of shocked by it. So here's what he said on Twitter. This was to be ex expected, but I still get a kick out of people who have sucked my dick for a decade straight, invited me on their shows a million times, and now disagree with me on Roe v. Wade, and suddenly I'm a pussy and an idiot. So let's look at this. Listen, I, I enjoy Barstool. You guys are irreverent. You're funny. You know, you celebrate manhood and sports and, and all the things we like about competition and meritocracy. Five minutes later. You know what? Let me turn off the music because it might get copyrighted. Good luck against your lib tormentors, bro. You're dumber than you look. Dude didn't respond with a kingpin gif when I defended this tool against Business Insider. Just another grifter pussy. Wait, what did that say? Just another grifter pussy who showed his ass. And take the 10K I sent to your fund and send it to a crisis pregnancy center. Chump. So Bongino went off on him and he fired back at Bongino. Um, I find people like Bongino immensely insufferable. And by the way, I'm not saying that None of this exists on the left because it does exist on the left. And you guys have seen it with your own two eyes. Uh, people who, look, I could agree with you on 94% of issues, but that 6% of issues where we disagree, you're irredeemable, you're the enemy, you're the problem, and now I'm going to take that and begin to malign your intentions and malign you as a person. Man, I hate people like that. And it's a very common thing nowadays where it's like, um, you're simply the enemy if you disagree on anything. 
Very rarely nowadays is it a thing where it's like, no, seriously though, agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. You know, I still like you. We're still friendly. We can still get along. We can still talk. You're still my brother, etc. That doesn't exist much anymore. So anytime I come across somebody who I feel like does that, does the agree to disagree thing, um, it's like I automatically like them. Because like, okay, look, a, a mature adult who is not socially maladjusted and super weird. You know, I talk about this all the time. When it comes to, for, for politicians, the standard is a little different because it's, I care about purity of policy when it comes to politicians. I really don't care about purity of character. Whatever flaws you have in your personal life, that's different. I don't care. You're dealing, everybody's dealing with their own demons, etc. That's totally fine. But I do care about purity of policy when it comes to politicians. But when it comes to whatever, other commentators or just friends in your life or family members or whatever, you can't, you can't take a stand on purity of policy or character because people are just colossally different. Everybody's on their own journey. Everybody has their own ideas. Now those ideas can evolve and change or stay the same. But you just deal with the individual at hand. You know, are, are they a good person in their heart? Do they mean well? And as long as they do, it doesn't matter if they disagree with me on everything. You know, and that's just not a thing nowadays, especially in, you know, the political commentary arena. Dan Bongino expects, uh, you know, the complete lockstep with his views. It's a very authoritarian way to live your life. And so because on Roe versus Wade, there's a disagreement now, Dave Portnoy is the enemy. And I do respect the fact that Portnoy is not shutting up about this. I do respect the fact, because a lot of people, as soon as they get that little taste of the disagreement, you know, a little taste of, like, the pushback, to appease everybody, you'll, they just back off of it or start saying the opposite, you know, take a position that they don't even really believe. Portnoy's not doing that. Portnoy's like, no, I, I think Roe versus Wade is correct. I believe in the right to choose. And even getting all this pushback, he's like, did I stutter? I didn't stutter. So, you got to respect that. Now, again, I don't know. It, it, Portnoy was like, me too and I think the story fell apart, and so it was like a false thing, and he got a lot of, of defense from the right, so that's why he felt like almost a natural alliance, in a sense, with them. But now what he's witnessing is, look, man, you step out of line once, and you're, what's the phrase, persona non grata? Is that the phrase? I have no idea. But anyway... Not surprise, uh, you know, the right is purity testing into oblivion. We've seen this on the left as well. I guess my message, my main takeaway in this whole thing is like, if you know somebody has pure intentions and if you know they have a good heart, then just have a conversation. Be normal. Be friends. Be acquaintances. Talk it out. Don't burn bridges and and malign intentions and and be a total douchebag and a dingbat. It's really weird. It's really weird. And anybody who, like, I pride myself on trying to maintain a, a strong semblance of normiedom. You know, I don't want to lose my brain online, which has happened to a lot of people. And I think everybody should pride themselves on normiedom, in a sense. You should, you should be proud of yourself if you're able to, you know, not fly off the handle at tiny disagreements and burn bridges and malign intentions and... Uh, here we see Dan Bongino is like the quintessential example of somebody who's just lost his mind in the political space, lost his mind, and tolerates zero disagreement. So there you have it. Hi, I'm Matt Stoller. 
author of Monopoly-focused newsletter Big, and an antitrust policy analyst. I have a great segment for you today on this big breakdown. I'm gonna talk about the merger between Sprint and T-Mobile that took place in 2020 and how it caused everyone's cell phone bills to go up. Now there's a bit of a happy ending to this story, sort of, not that happy, but it's not all gloom. Okay, for starters, remember the uncarrier marketing shtick from T-Mobile? For a few years, it was the biggest marketing story in wireless, maybe in corporate America. T-Mobile CEO John Leisure, often wearing a magenta shirt and a leather jacket, would attack the, his own industry as arrogant and greedy, and he would promise simple plans, unlimited data, low prices, transparent fees, and the business press just ate it up. A lot of people feel that companies themselves are soulless, that CEOs are buttoned down, and that if you do become anything other than that, it's going to hurt your business model. You are a living, breathing example that that's wrong. Hello, who's this? This is Lisa. Lisa. What's up? <laughs> oh my God, can I just tell you, you are the best CEO on this planet? Yeah, but that's easy because most CEOs suck. <laughs> Corporations should be fun and spontaneous, yay. Okay, but most of all, they should cut prices and deliver what consumers want. And that is what T-Mobile did. From 2012, when he became CEO, Leisure cut prices for cell phone plans. And this price war affected the whole industry. Prices dropped on average by 6.5% a year till 2019. There were lots of new offerings, new deals, better phones, better customer service, all the things you'd expect from competition when companies are trying to get your business. But that price war came to an end in 2020. And last Friday, the Wall Street Journal published an article saying that the industry is no longer lowering prices. Prices, in fact, are starting to go up. Here are some examples. AT&T raised the cost of its older wireless plans by up to $6 for single lines and $12 for family plans. Verizon raised prices by up to $12 a month on some of its data plans and slapped a monthly per smartphone fee of $2.20 on business plans and raised consumer wireless plans by $1.25 a month. And T-Mobile raised fees on older plans by $0.31 cents a month and its activation and support fees by $5. What happened? Well, we can thank this guy. Yes, Mr. Fun CEO himself, John Leisure. You see, the real cause of the uncarrier strategy was not a charismatic CEO, but an antitrust suit. In 2011, there were four real competitors, national competitors in the wireless market, Verizon, AT&T, Sprint, and T-Mobile. And that's one too many if you are a telecom CEO. According to the Balanced Economy Project, when a telecom market has four rivals, four competitors, there's actual competition and they fight over market share with better prices and better products. But if a merger happens and reduces the number of rivals in that market from four to three, prices go up on average by 16.3% per customer. And that, that they looked across 33 different countries, so it's a pretty robust finding. In 2011, there was just this situation. AT&T sought to buy T-Mobile because there were four carriers in the market and they wanted there to be three. So if they bought T-Mobile, there would only have three competitors and everybody now could raise prices or at least stop prices from going down. Now the Obama administration was generally pretty bad on corporate power and antitrust, but in this case, they did block the merger. Now, Leisure became CEO of T-Mobile right after this suit. And T-Mobile was the smallest of the carriers, so he tried to get share. And he launched the uncarrier strategy and marketing campaign as a result of the antitrust case. He launched a price war. But what happened is that executives across the industry became increasingly agitated over lower profits, even as this price war continues and con continued and consumers were benefiting. Deutsche Telekom, which has owned T-Mobile since 2001, saw removing one of four players as essential to cashing out. The AT&T T-Mobile merger didn't go through and they were like, we gotta find something to get rid of one of the competitors in this market. In, in 2015, 
Peter Ewens, T-Mobile's head of strategy, told Leisure that if we can't get four to three consolidation, the industry is headed for commoditization and Deutsche Telekom should limit their exposure to the US. Basically, if they couldn't make a merger happen, they should sell T-Mobile possibly at a loss. And keep in mind, this is at the same time as Leisure is on TV all over the place with his magenta you know, uh, uh, clothing saying, we're working for consumers. They are trying at that time to consolidate the market so they can stop lowering prices. What happens? Okay, enter Donald Trump's new telecom-friendly administration. Now, uh, I don't want to get partisan here because the, the Democrats are pretty close to certain corporate to corporate power, and so are the Republicans, but they're close to different industries. And the Republicans tend to be closer to the telecom industry. Well, immediately after Trump took office, Leisure texted the higher-ups at Deutsche Telekom, and he said that, quote, the regulatory environment will never be better than now for a four to three merger. To highlight this point, he then added, quote, big prizes, so smile and get to the table. And they did. Sprint and T-Mobile decided to merge and launched a massive lobbying campaign to get the Trump administration to allow the merger. Remember that super fun CEO? He had a lot of fun in Washington, D.C. Uh, and both Sprint and T-Mobile spent tons of money at the Trump Hotel to get their merger through. And it worked. Trump installed an ex-Verizon executive, Ajit Pai, at the Federal Communication Commission, which oversees telecom mergers, and Pai let T-Mobile buy Sprint without a challenge. In fact, he said it was a good merger, it was good for the public interest. But a number of state attorney generals, led by Letitia James in New York, did sue to stop the merger. Unfortunately, a Bill Clinton-appointed judge, Victor Marrero, heard the case and ruled against the states and for T-Mobile. Marrero did so because, for a number of reasons, one of which is that the federal government said, oh, this is a good merger. But also, throughout the process of buying Sprint, and T-Mobile executives and the trial had promised that they would continue its, quote, past pattern of aggressive competition with AT&T and Verizon, and that the merger would therefore not result in higher prices, end quote. But as soon as the merger closed, prices started going up. As Deutsche Telekom CEO publicly bragged, after the merger closed, it's harvest time. Indeed, here is a price chart for wireless telephone services showing what happened before and after the merger. That sort of says it all. It turns out that, yes, Leisure had lied to the judge. Shocking, I know. Now, T-Mobile was blocked by the merger agreement from raising its prices directly, but it raised prices in other ways, by hiking fees, passing through increases in the cost of third-party benefits like streaming services, denying use of its network to its rival Dish, which was a condition of the merger, as well as increasing the cost of devices and handsets. T-Mobile also destroyed independent wireless dealers, shrinking the number of stores and forcing onerous terms on the remaining, uh, remaining wireless dealers. T-Mobile also immediately started spying on its customers by expanding its surveillance ad business, which is exactly the kind of invasion of privacy that Google and Facebook engage in because they don't have a lot of competition. So the merger didn't just hurt T-Mobile customers. It changed the industry. It, it kind of hurt all mobile customers. Without price competition, AT&T and Verizon are now hiking prices and will likely keep doing so. Now, to be fair, some of the promises of the merging parties were kept. For instance, Sprint and T-Mobile executives got the large bonuses that they were promised for getting this merger through. Leisure himself received more than $137 million estimated out of the deal in a severance payment promised to him on completion of the merger. Yes, immediately after the deal, he stepped down as CEO, probably so he wouldn't ever have to look at the color magenta again. Now, normally, after such a fiasco, there's nothing to be done. 
Executives lie to a judge, a merger goes through, everybody but Wall Street loses, the end. But in a recent antitrust suit, this was filed just a couple of weeks ago, plaintiff's lawyers in a class action suit representing consumers are suing T-Mobile and its owners, Deutsche Telekom and SoftBank on behalf of consumers. And they are calling for a reversal of the merger and for damages based on what they show are unfair price hikes. Now, could a breakup happen? Could these private plaintiffs get what they want? Well, last year, the Fourth Circuit heard a similar suit and ordered a breakup of a company called Gelled Wen, which is a window and door producer that cheated competitors. So it is possible. There is precedent. Now, hopefully this case goes to court, and part of the remedy will be clawing back the $100 million-plus compensation that went to leisure. Lying to a judge to enable an illegal merger, also a phone company can raise our cell phone bills, is wrong. No one should get a perjury bonus, no matter how much magenta they are willing to humiliate themselves by wearing. Thanks for watching this big breakdown on the Breaking Points channel. If you'd like to know more about big business and how our economy really works, you can sign up below for my market power-focused newsletter, Big, in the description. Thanks and have a good one. Hey there, my name is James Lee. Welcome to another segment of 5149 on Breaking Points. And today I want to talk about golf, specifically the PGA Tour's developing war against the Saudis' new Live Golf Tour, because I think it provides us with an interesting case study of how institutions function, what their purpose is, who they're beholden to, and what kinds of external pressures they respond to. Now, I know some of you maybe aren't regular viewers of golf, or maybe a lot of you aren't regular viewers of golf, so I want to take a quick second to lay out the basics. Like most professional sports, professional golf is more or less organized regionally and dominated by these monopolistic leagues. In the United States, the premier organizer of competition is, of course, the PGA Tour. In Europe, you have the European Tour, now known as the DP World Tour, those two tours are often viewed as having the most cachet and relatively on par with one another in terms of competitive quality. And then there are these other various affiliate tours around the other parts of the world, the Japan Golf Tour, PGA Tour of Australasia, the Sunshine Tour in South Africa, etc., etc. So like I was saying, the PGA Tour has pretty much held a monopoly over professional golf tournaments in the United States. They bring together the biggest sponsors with the most money, the best players, and the most fans. Prize money is awarded to players based on how well they do in the tournament. The winner makes on average north of a million dollars. The top half all come away with some money, and the bottom half, unfortunately, receive no money at all. So a big difference here between pro golfers and maybe other professional athletes is that outside of individual sponsorship money, a paycheck is actually not guaranteed with participation like in most other sports. But all that is changing. A golf tournament funded by Saudi Arabia is asking questions of how the sport is run and what, if anything, the sport stands for. At the Centurion course in the south of England, some of the world's best players have gathered. It's an exciting time. I think it's exciting for the game of golf and I'm excited to be a part of it. Excitement all round. And this is a series of eight tournaments aimed, we're told, at giving players more freedom. Live Golf has given them the opportunity for another pathway to, to be the independent contractors, go play where they need to play, when they want to play, for more money. That's right, more money. And of course, the money is not really the controversial part here. It's the source of that money that's sparking the controversy, with Live Golf being backed by the Saudi Arabian government, a country with 
rampant human rights abuses, most notably the murder of dissident Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, but they also happen to have extremely deep pockets and have been poaching players with guaranteed money just to participate in their tournaments, from millions to tens of millions of dollars for some veteran players and even hundreds of millions for the top players. Quote, the widely reported figures include $200 million for Phil Mickelson, $125 million for Dustin Johnson, $100 million plus for Bryson DeChambeau, and between $20 and $30 million for the 46-year-old Ian Poulter. Now, in every professional sport dispute, the narrative of millionaire versus billionaires gets thrown around a lot. But the reality is there are actually a lot of golfers that are just grinding it out, playing a game for a living, no doubt, but not exactly living a glamorous lifestyle. For example, Andy Ogletree, the golfer who finished last in the first Live Golf Tournament, made $120,000 for playing in just that tournament alone, compared with just $38,000 in two years on the PGA Tour since he turned pro back in 2020. So you could see why golfers would want to join the Live Golf Tour. What, what is it about Live Golf that attracted you? You know, ever since I was first introduced to this idea, you know, I, I thought it was, you know, great for the game of golf. You know, I was excited about the, a, a new format, you know, kind of a new, new kind of golf that, you know, I think is, is great for the game, it's great for the fans. Nope, it's not that. Uh, like we've already covered, golf is already played all around the world, so I don't really see how live golf is going to grow the game. It's just about the money, and, and to me, the truth is always a defense, and I think sports fans are more or less okay with pro athletes being honest about the money. I mean, yeah, sure, there's a certain glory to competition and in winning championships, but a lot of incentives are financial, so we get it. You don't have to beat around the bush with us. Just in, 9-11 Families released a statement moments ago saying, quote, Phil knows exactly what he's doing, and he and his fellow lived golfers should be ashamed. They're helping the Saudi regime sports wash their reputation in return for tens of millions of dollars. Joining us now, CNN contributor Bob Costas. Bob, great to see you in person. Hi, Brianna. What do you think of the controversy and how Mickelson responded to it yesterday? Well, he's trying to smooth things out, but this is blood money. It's just no two ways around it. It's blood money. This is Saudi blood money. We know all we need to know. Now, I'm not going to defend Saudi Arabia, obviously, but come on, morality? Are we really suggesting that we expect the same, if not higher standards from pro golfers and actual public servants who will take money from just about anybody? And to give golfers some credit, some have taken a stand while others have taken the money. I don't think we can or should expect much more than that. In a recent interview, Hall of Fame golfer Greg Norman, the CEO of Live Golf, fired back at the PGA Tour for being hypocritical, saying, quote, look, if they want to look at it in prism, then why does the PGA Tour have 23 sponsors within the PGA Tour doing 40 plus billion dollars worth of business with Saudi Arabia? The European PGA Tour has a golf tournament, the Saudi International, that's still in existence since 2019, Norman said. And during that Saudi International, there were PGA Tour players who were given rights and waivers to go play there. I mean, the reality is the amount of money that's flowing around all throughout the world, there's no side that's truly clean. Yeah, you have one side definitely more evil than the other. We have capitalists, full-throated capitalists agreed on one side versus straight-up murders on the other. But the fact is, so far, 20 of the top 100 players in the world and 6 of the top 50 have already joined Live Golf with more on the way. 
And that leaves the PGA Tour terrified, so much so that they've taken unprecedented action to ban any golfers who teed up in a live golf event from future PGA Tour competition. They've also announced eight additional events with a $160 million total purse for top players in no-cut tournaments with a guaranteed payout similar to the live golf events. Now, when asked where the money came from in a recent press conference, the commissioner of the PGA Tour was basically forced to admit that there was always a little bit more money all along. Jay, as you mentioned, through the resource allocation plan, it was announced today that purses will be raised at those eight events moving forward. Yeah. Uh, just wondering, where, where, does, where do those increased funds come from? And if they were readily available, why weren't they being offered previously? Like I said earlier, we're, we're running a business. And so the changes that we're making, which will be roughly $45 million in incremental purse, is coming from a combination of sponsor contribution, you know, ways to continue to, to sell more within those events themselves, and our reserves. In reserves, you see, the PGA Tour's decision to go to war with live golfers shaming them at first, even getting the 9-11 families involved, and when that didn't work, punishing them by banning them from future competition isn't because they are human rights advocates or bastions of democracy or principled actors against evil. They're doing so to preserve the PGA Tour. That's it. That's why all of a sudden they're willing to shell out more money, because their survival is being threatened. Which brings me to the point I wanted to end on, which is a case study on institutions, their purpose, who they're beholden to, and what kinds of pressures they respond to. Machiavelli wrote in The Prince, quote, A prince must have no other objective, no other thought, nor take up any profession but that of war, its methods, and its discipline, for that is the only art expected of a ruler. The analogy I'm trying to make is that for any institution, PGA Tour included, the ultimate goal is self-preservation. They don't exist to serve players. They exist primarily to maintain their monopoly power over players. Who they actually serve are those who enable them to fortify their war chests and defend their monopoly, namely capital, the people who control that flow of money, aka, in their case, multi-billion dollar corporate sponsors. And if I can take a, a brief detour from the Gulf, and make another analogy to another almighty institution, the United States Congress, which I believe functions in a very similar way. I don't think it's really an accident that Congress has such low approval ratings. It's not that the, the Democrats and the Republicans don't know how to govern. It's that good governance takes a back seat to their real priority, which is, once again, self-preservation. It's not really incompetence that explains why they haven't raise the minimum wage or haven't been able to lower the prescription drug prices, it's that they were never meant to. And one final thought, just my two cents. Any appeal to morality or tradition from any institutional power is done with some degree of obfuscation. The truth is that institutions really ha they have no morals or traditions at all, other than to preserve their power. The PJ Tour doesn't care about human rights any more than Republicans care about life or the Democrats fighting for the little guy. Appeal to morality and tradition is a technique used to appeal to human emotion as a form of control. You shouldn't do this because the money is dirty, you can't vote for them because they're bigots, 
or you can't vote for them because they're radical liberals, et cetera, et cetera. The unfortunate truth is that in today's society, there are no more morals. There are no sides. There's just money. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion about golf and about how institutions function. If you found this interesting and would like to learn more, please check out my channel, 5149 with James Lee, where I release weekly videos relating to the intersection of business, politics, and society. Link will be in the description below. Of course, subscribe to Breaking Points. And thank you so much for your time today. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.